Good morning, folks. Say it again. Good morning. See, I hadn't heard that in a few weeks. I, I hadn't been up here for three weeks. Three weeks ago, Christy had COVID, and because of her, I couldn't be here. And uh, so I, we, we recorded the sermon that week. And then last uh, two weeks ago, we had a snow day, so I recorded that. And then last week, Lance preached, and I wasn't up here. Lance, he did a great job, didn't he? Let's give him. Is Lance here? Is he in here right now? Is he hiding? Okay. Oh, there he is, all the way in the back, still celebrating last night's victory over my hill. Okay, I'll give it to you this time, big guy. Um, but uh, so it is great to be back and sharing with you guys today. But I have a I have a confession to make, and this this is serious, and it's from my heart. I have struggled over the last couple of years. With COVID and families being missing and people leaving the church and constantly having to figure this church COVID policy of mask or no mask and people getting mad either way you go. And I'm going to be honest, it got me down. And I have felt inadequate. I have felt like a failure at times. I have felt discouraged. I have been maybe not clinically depressed, but I have felt depressed. I have struggled with my passion and my focus. And, you know, just to be honest, it felt like all the effort and all the energy and all the life that I've poured into this church for the past 22 years seemed to be melting away, just evaporating. That's what I was feeling. I don't know if you can empathize with me or not. I'm just trying to be genuine with you, okay? So this past week, some of you may know our team, and we got a great team here at Christ Church. You guys are awesome. By the way, Denise has COVID and she's home, okay? So be in prayer for her. But um, our team went to Savannah for a church conference, and I really believe the Lord spoke to me through the messages that were given. And, and here's what I got. Tim, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Okay? Tim, stop your whining. Tim, stop with your second guessing. Tim, stop with your self-doubt and discouragement. God is still in charge. God has called you to this. Focus on what you have and not on what you don't have. Focus on who you have and not on who's left. Focus on the victories and not on what you think is a defeat. It isn't up to you anyway. It's up to God. Just be obedient. Just be faithful. Man, I needed that slap in the face, right? God will handle the rest. So I come before you today with a different perspective. And I ask you, first of all, to forgive me for losing my focus. And I want to thank you. That's right, every one of you who have been faithful. You have been here. You are the core. You have not left. You have stayed. And not only that, but you have given and you have served. And you've not quit. You've not given up. Um, I'm, thank you for all of those things. You know, during all of that COVID, our giving was up. Isn't that amazing? Through all that difficulty, our giving was up. We might have had fewer numbers, but people were giving. Through COVID, Denise has told me that now we have 70 volunteers in our children's ministry. That's amazing. 
When you think about our numbers are lower, but our, we still have the number of volunteers. So thank you. And I commit to you that God is bringing that passion and that focus back. And God willing, He will help me continue to have that. And I hope that you'll walk with me through the next steps so that we do more in the next months and years than we did in the 22 previous years. One step at a time, one day at a time. We just have to win the day. Don't let doubt in today. Don't lose focus today. Be passionate about Jesus today. That's what the sermon series is all about. And I hope you will get as much out of it as I have gotten out of getting ready for it. On April the 20th, 1913, Sir William Osler developed a, uh, or delivered a speech at Yale University, and it had a simple message. And this is the basic four-word message. Live in day-tight compartments. Now, that is easier said than done. But if we can pull it off, if we can put that into practice, it's going to solve a lot of problems for us. According to psychologists Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in the present. Think about that. Half of what we're thinking about isn't about what we're doing right now. Have y'all found that to be true? <laughs> we're doing something and our mind is taking us somewhere else. In other words, we're living in the wrong time zone. We're depressed about the past. We're worried about the future. We're distracted. We're frustrated. We're overwhelmed by this or that or the other thing. We, have, we are half present half the time, which means we're half alive. I mean, the only way to be fully alive is to be fully present. And the only way to be fully present is to live in daytight compartments. This is not just a good idea. This is a God idea. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. You, you help me out with this. Give us this day our... Take up your cross daily. This is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. His mercies are new every morning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't worry about tomorrow. So here's the bottom line. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Our job is to win the day. That's it. Win today. Don't worry about the past. Right? Don't, don't worry about the future. Focus on today. I have no idea what goal you're going after, what problem you're trying to solve, or what habit you're trying to break, because some we need to break and build. But, but I do know that the secret for our success is this. It's going to happen one day at a time. We have to win the day. And then we have to get up and do it all over again the next day. Do this two days in a row, and you know what we got? We got us a winning streak, right? It's also called sanctification. Here's what's going to happen over the next seven weeks. We're going to be unpacking seven habits 
that will help us stress less and accomplish more. And here are the seven habits. Flip the script. That's today. Kiss the wave. Eat the frog. Fly the kite. Cut the rope. Wind the clock. And seed the clouds. So obviously you know you're going to have to be here in order to know what in the world are they talking about. But Mark Batterson wrote this book entitled Win the Day. And within the pages of this book are biblical principles which will help us to get refocused and be out there doing what God wants us to do. And let me plant a seed of faith right here. Almost anyone can accomplish almost anything if we work at it long enough, hard enough, and smart enough. Many of you have already discovered that to be true. You are capable of more than you can even imagine. How do we know this? Well, because the Bible tells us God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. That's truth. That said, 75% of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month. That means right about now, <laughs> many of us are looking back at that, oh my goodness, uh, I've, I've already stopped doing what I've wanted to do. When you think in one-year timelines, it can be a little overwhelming, can it? You feel like quitting even before you start. So here's the question, and we're going to keep coming back to this during the series. I want you to just pick a habit, any habit in your mind. Can you do it for a day? For one day. Can you, can you do just about any habit for one day? You have to take your life goals and reverse engineer them into daily habits. So here's the good news. The only ceiling on our intimacy with God and on our impact on the world is daily spiritual disciplines. If you will meet with God every day, God is going to show up and God is going to show off. He's going to show you what He can do. Now, um, years ago, Vladimir Lenin, and listen, I'm not going to quote Lenin a lot, but this is maybe the only quote that I'll probably ever give for him. But he made this statement. There are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. There's some truth in that. Let's push that a little further. There are days, think about it, when decades happen. Having said that, let's say this. You can't just flip the calendar and expect everything to change. You can't expect, okay, this is where I want to be. And because I want it now, that's it. No, it doesn't happen that quick. You have to flip the script. And it's the first, seven, first of the seven habits that we're going to find in Mark Batterson's book, Win the Day. And here's the big idea for today. If you want to change your life, you have to change your story. Say that with me. If you want to change your life, you have to change your story. Now, in the science of cybernetics, and I don't, I don't know nothing about cybernetics, but I read, right? There are two kinds of change, and this makes sense. First order change is behavioral. It's doing something more or less. If you're trying to lose weight, 
Eat less, exercise more. These are steps in the right direction. First order change can facilitate some quick fixes, but second order change passes the test of time. Second order change is conceptual. It is a mind over matter. And that's where the magic really happens because everything is created twice. Just think about it this way. The first creation is mental. It's internal. You think about it and you devise your plan. The second creation is physical. It is external. Everything was once a thought and that includes you and me. You don't just bear God's image. You are His idea. You are His workmanship. You are a unique expression of God's imagination. To see yourself as anything less than that is to believe a lie. And friends, a lot of people are believing the lie. There never has been, never will be, anyone exactly like you. That's not a testament to you or me. That is a testament to God who created us, right? Amen? The significance of this is that no one can worship God exactly like you can or for you, in place of you. No one can serve God exactly like you or for you or in place of you because you are unique. God created you that way. Now, we tend to think of habits as external exercises to increase our proficiency or our productivity. It's practicing scales or it's practicing skills. Now, those external habits are certainly going to pay dividends, but the biggest return on our investment, and this is what Mark Batterson calls high leverage habits, are the internal habits that no one sees. They see the external, but there's something going on with our internal monologue. It's the way you explain your experiences to yourself. It's the stories you tell yourself day in and day out. It's why I was beginning to believe I was a failure. You see, on average, about 60,000 thoughts fire across our brains every single day. Now, I think I'm around some people that that's 120,000 thoughts because, boy, they're just going all over the place. But according to a study done by the Cleveland Clinic, 80% of those thoughts are negative. Think about that. We got a problem. We got a stinking thinking problem, right? The Proverbs writer says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts have a psychological and a physiological effect. Your thoughts have the power to lower your blood pressure, slow your pulse, and boost your immunity. Or they can do the exact opposite. We all know this. The battle is won or lost right up here in our mind. Either way, the stories you tell yourself are far more important than the situations you find yourself in. Now, that's amazing if you think about it, but it's true. 
That's when and where and how to flip the script. And with that as a backdrop, let's talk about Genesis 50, 20. Let me set the scene. Cruz has already sort of shared a little bit. But when Joseph was a teenager, he had this dream. He's 17 years old, right? Young boy. The youngest of all, right? Uh, uh, well, uh, next to the youngest. A, t- a dream that all of his family, his brothers and his dad, would one day all bow down before him. Now, he makes the mistake of telling all of them about his dream. Now, I'm not sure if he was bragging, you know, y'all going to bow down to me one day. Or if he's just saying, hey, guys, I had this dream. It was really weird. Y'all were all bowing down. I, I don't know which of those it was for Joseph, but his brothers definitely took it as bragging, right? Well, he just thinks he's better than we are. And so they decide they had to get rid of old Joseph. And so they decide they're going to kill him. But the oldest brother, you know, says, hey, let, let, let's not kill him. Let, let's, uh, let's just get rid of him. Let's sell him into slavery. Throw him down in this cistern, this hole here. And, um, you know, then we'll, we'll sell him later. And when the oldest brother gets back, he, he's thinking to himself, I'll get back when they're gone and I'll, I'll help him escape. And we'll deal with this a little later. But when he got back, the other brothers had already sold him. It was too late. And life goes from bad to worse for Joseph because he ends up in prison for a crime he didn't commit. You ever been punished for something you didn't do or had somebody mad at you for something you, you didn't know why they were mad at you? If anybody could have played the victim card, it's Joseph. But that isn't the story Joseph narrates to himself. Long story short, Joseph is put in a situation where he is able to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had. Pharaoh would wind up putting his signet ring on Joseph's finger, and he makes Joseph second in command, in charge of the distribution of the food that they would store up over several years, so that when a famine came, Joseph would be in charge of distributing that food. Thirteen years after selling him into slavery, his brothers come knocking at the door, begging for food because of the famine. Now in Genesis 43, 28, we read that his brothers come and what do they do? They bow down before him. Not because they knew who he was, because they had no clue. They just knew he was this guy in power. They're having to beg food to save their family. I can only imagine what Joseph must have thought or what he must have felt when he saw his brothers and they're bowing before him. It's a day when decades happen. The vision he had at 17, the vision that seemed to go off the rails, the vision that took the wrong turn, the vision that seemed so far away, the vision that didn't seem to be anywhere near possible, that vision is fulfilled in that moment, the day when decades happen. All right, now, chapter 50, verse 20. It's like a time-lapse video, right? Joseph looks back at all of the ups and downs, all of the pain and the suffering, 
all of the twists and turns that his life has taken. And this is what he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Wow. Just to have that viewpoint. After all he had been through, after all the pain and suffering his brothers had caused him, may God give us a 50-20 vision, right? Let me make this as simple as one, two, three. If you want to flip the script, you have to get three things. You have to know your name, you have to fix your focus, and you have to change your story. So let's think about those things real quick. You have to know your name. More than a century ago, Charles Horton Cooley, founder of the American Sociological Association, said, I am not what I think I am, and I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. <laughs> a bit of a tongue twister, mind bender, but I think there's truth in that. I bet it sounds sort of vaguely familiar to you. Cooley called it the looking glass self. And it's basing ourself on how we believe others see us. So our sense of self comes from lots of different sources. Sometimes it's as simple as someone saying to us, man, you did a great job, or you got to get your act together. You're terrible at this. Either way, it's letting other people narrate our story. It's living our life according to their expectations. So it's critical for us to take our cues from Scripture. The book of James likens the Bible to a mirror. This is where we discover who we are in God's eyes. This is how we know our name. This is how we flip the script. Let, let's think back to Joseph's story. A after playing a few mind games with his brothers, which I, I would say he was pretty justified to do all that. He could have done a lot worse, right, with his brothers. He didn't just come out and tell them who he was. He, he sort of messed with them a little bit. But he finally revealed his identity to them. And in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 3, we read Joseph when he finally says to them, I am Joseph. Now, we read right past that, right? But Joseph knows his name. Of course Joseph knows his name. I mean, it's his name. But think about this little fun fact. When Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command, he doesn't just give him his signet ring. He gives him an Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paneah. And not only that, but he puts on the Egyptian clothes and he makes him to look like a real Egyptian. That's why the brothers had no clue who he was. He, he spoke Egyptian, he wore Egyptian clothes, he looked like an Egyptian, he had an Egyptian name. It would have been so easy for Joseph to forget who he was. And if you allow it to, culture will name you or it will tame you. It will label you. It will define you. Cancel culture will chew you up and spit you out, right? You have to know who you are. 
You have to know whose you are. You need to know your name. And in Christ, this is who you are. Now listen to me. God calls you blessed. The world may want to say something else to you, but God calls you blessed. God calls you chosen. God calls you blameless, adopted by your heavenly Father, redeemed by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, stamped with the image of God. That's who you are. You are who God says you are. And if you want to flip the script, you need to know your name. And you need to trust in that name. You also need to fix your focus. Mark Batterson's family has a saying, your focus determines your reality. You know, I used to, uh, when the girls would get up, uh, some, sometimes my girls would get up and they'd be on the uh, how do you put it? You slept on the wrong side of the bed or something, you know, or you got up on the wrong side of the bed. Uh, but, you know, you can wake up sometimes and just be in a foul mood, you know. Any of y'all ever have kids that do that? Um, I got a feeling sometimes we do that, right? And I used to sit down and tell the girls, listen, um, you know, you can, you can choose to have a bad attitude all day. I mean, you can choose to be miserable angry with the world, or sad, or you can choose to be happy. You determine. Whichever one of those you focus on is going to be your reality. And we're basically told the same thing in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why? Because your focus will determine your reality. If you're looking for an excuse, listen, you're going to find one. If you're looking for something to be grateful for, you know, you're going to find that too. There's a concept in psychology called cognitive reappraisal. It's telling yourself a different story about what is happening. And Joseph is exhibit A. Joseph could have played the victim card, right? He had every reason to play the victim card. He could have played the revenge card. He had every reason to be bitter. He could have played God and even the score with his brothers. But he doesn't do either of those things. Why? Because he's got a God's eye view. Dr. Martin Seligman, the former president of the APA, said that all of us have what he calls an explanatory style. And by that, he says, explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. It happened because I'm no good. It happened because I can't do It happened because... We have all kinds of reasons. But in those explanations... Not the experiences themselves, but the explanations are the things that make us or break us. What's Joseph's explanatory style? Well, it's Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but I'm not going to focus on that. God intended it for good for the saving of lives. 
There, there was a meme circulating social media at the end of 2020. Some of you might remember that, the, the 2020 dumpster fire. <laughs> That's pretty funny, right? But it's, it's the wrong explanation. 2020 wasn't a dumpster fire. You know, as I, as I think about where my mind and my heart were taking me, it wasn't a dumpster fire. It's a refiner's fire. What comes out of the refiner's fire is always more pure, more precious, more valuable. Why? Because it's been refined by the touch of the master's hand. And whatever you've gone through or whatever you're going through or whatever you will go through, if you view it as a refiner's fire, God can take you to other places. The prophet Malachi asked the question, who is able to endure? Who is able to stand? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. So how do we fix our focus? Well, the short answer is found in Hebrews 12 too. The New American Standard reads, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Don't you love that moment? We talked about this several weeks ago when Peter got out of that boat and he started walking to Jesus in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, that took a ton of faith, right? I mean, but here, here's the idea. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. And here's what happened with Peter. He got out of that boat because he was focusing on Jesus and he trusted Jesus. And he was walking on water just like Jesus was. That's what happens when we follow Jesus and we focus on him. And then he lost his focus. He looked at his surroundings. He looked at the wind and the waves and he, he got scared and he sank. And the rest is history. A couple of things to help us get our focus right. Keep a gratitude journal. Do any of you keep prayer journals at home? Um, if you have a, a notebook, I really want to encourage you to do this. Just every day as you pray, as you open up the Bible, jot down notes, record your prayers. But in your prayers, reveal an attitude of gratitude. One of the simplest ways to fix your focus is keeping this gratitude journal. Uh, uh, it will help us to get our minds focused on what we need to be thinking about. You see, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And all of this is to say your explanations are more important than your experiences. So look for things to be grateful for. And the second way to change that focus is change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. So the key to spiritual growth is routine. But once the routine becomes routine, maybe you need to change the routine a little. This is called the law of requisite variety. Mark Batterson talks about how uh, he downloads a Bible reading plan from YouVersion. Many of you do that. 
But he also changes translations from time to time. He says, it makes my synapses fire in a little different way. Last year I read the Amplified Version, which I absolutely love. This year I'm going back to the NLT, the New Living Translation. It's a change of pace for me. I mean, for me, I will often change the pace in the middle of the year. I, I want to do some studies like win the day. I can get a book. I can read through the book. I can, you know, begin to use that sort of as a, a discipline, a, 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 something to focus on. And it will change my perspective. Other times I'm strictly, you know, going verse by verse in the Bible, doing a study on that. By the way, our, our men are studying uh, on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Romans and the entire year. It's going to take us all year long to go through the entire book of Romans. But there's lots of ways to put this into practice. You can do a silent retreat. You can practice some uh, you know, godly, biblical, spiritual meditation. Uh, you can fast. Um, but all these things can help us flip the script. There's another suggestion that he has in the book, and that is read old books. How many of you like reading? Any of you like reading? Okay, there's a few of you. And one old book in particular would be good for us to read. Uh, Ivan Pavlov once said, if you want new ideas, read old books. Now, I love biographies. I don't know about you. I love history and biographies because they help me see my life from a different perspective. And that said, no book is older, no book is better than what book? The Bible. I mean, it gives us a God's eye view. Now, the Jewish theologian Abraham Herschel said that prophecy is exegesis of existence from a divine perspective. And he would go on to say, in decisive hours of history, it dawns upon us that we would not trade certain lines of the book of Isaiah for the seven wonders of the world. Simply saying, during times of crisis, we need to get a word from God. Have you found that to be true? I mean, plenty of, there's been plenty of crisis all around us for the last couple of years. I hope that you've turned to the word of God for that healing balm that it can be. You know, Scripture is our plumb line. It is our anchor line. It is our lifeline. That brings us to number three. You have to change your story. According to a study done by Emory University, the best predictor of a child's emotional well-being is not getting them into a great school. Now, I know that may be shocking to many of us as parents. It's not the school that determines whether they are emotionally healthy. It's not giving them lots of hugs and kisses, not saying we shouldn't. It's not taking them on a pilgrimage to Disney World every year, and, and for the kids' sake, I'm not saying you shouldn't. It's not watching Pixar films, and it's also not uh, whooping them every week, okay? But according to these researchers at Emory University, the number one indicator of emotional well-being is a child knowing their family history. Now, you might be thinking, hmm, I don't think my family history would give them much emotional well-being. <laughs> but, but here's what we know for sure. All of us are born into someone else's story, right? We all have a family of origin. 
And there's our, that's our Genesis story. Our, our children are born into our story. And I was born into my parents' story. And my parents were born into my grandparents' story. For better or for worse, all of us were born into someone else's story. Now here's the good news. If you are a Christian, if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God, and you have been grafted into God's family. We get grafted into God's story. And this is huge, friends. Scripture becomes our script. The book is our backstory, and our lives become the rest of the story. You can think of it this way, like you're the fifth gospel. I mean, God living through us. We're Acts 29, we're Revelation 23. We are God moving through us, His story continuing. You are the only Bible some people will ever read. You may be the catalyst for someone seeing your life and choosing to follow Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question Is your life a good translation? Here's how it works. You surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. You can do that today if you've never done it before. You can give the author and the perfecter of your faith complete editorial control, and he begins writing his story in you and through you. Now, in Judaism, we know that those who followed a rabbi had four responsibilities. First, they would memorize his words, and that's how we got the Gospels. Second, they would adopt uh, that rabbi's unique interpretation of Scripture. It was called the rabbi's yoke. Today we may call it Sermon on the Mount. The third responsibility is imitating the rabbi's way of life. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. And the fourth responsibility was discipling others the way you were discipled. It's Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. But let's think back to that third responsibility, the imitating part. It's one key to habit formation. There's a form of acting called method acting. Any of y'all ever heard of that? If you watch movies or you see TV. It involves taking extreme measures to get into that character that the actor is going to play. It's a, a thing of legends in Hollywood. Dustin Hoffman went three days without sleep to prep for a scene in Marathon Man. Meryl Streep learned Polish and German for Sophie's Choice. Christian Bale lost 60 pounds to play an emaciated insomniac. Jamie Foxx glued his eyes shut to play Ray Charles. Leonardo DiCaprio slept in an animal carcass while filming The Revenant. This is why I'm not an actor, okay? <laughs> But discipleship is method acting. It's taking our cues from Jesus. We love like Jesus. We think like Jesus. We pray like Jesus. We treat people like Jesus would. Do that long enough and you become more and more like Jesus, which really is the ultimate goal of discipleship, to be just like Jesus. So here's a simple theory of spiritual maturity. When you first encounter a verse in Scripture, it's nothing more than a theory, right? 
You have to test the theory. How? Well, you put that theory into practice. And then that theory becomes your testimony. Maturity is testing God's Word. Maturity is that theory becoming your testimony. I'll give you an example. Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. We've been given tremendous authority, we, but we have to exercise it. Now, now, you know, as we think about this, you know, when we pray, we pray in the name of God for the will of God. That, that's sort of like exercising the authority God has given us. But every prayer has to pass a twofold litmus test. It has to be the will of God and it has to be for the glory of God. Anything less, anything else is a non-starter. God is not a genie in a bottle and He is not our wish at our command. Prayer isn't outlining my agenda to God. It's getting into God's Word and God's presence and letting God outline His agenda to us. So remember that signet ring Pharaoh gave to Joseph? I mean, he gave Joseph full authority. He had the full backing of the king and his kingdom. And friends, we do too. We don't have to be afraid of what this world or culture will say. We don't have to back down because of our faith. We don't have to say, I'm sorry, because we have the authority of God. He is with us. This is our script. We are method actors. The theory becomes reality, and when it does, it becomes our testimony. And testimony is God living through us. If God did it before, God can do it again. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Flip the script and win the day. Father, we come to you today so thankful for how you have flipped the script in our lives. Through Jesus, you give us that opportunity. Through Jesus, you give us that hope that our lives can be changed. We can uh, live our life with a different point of view, a different perspective, and we can be more positive. So, Father, I just pray that you would be with us, that you would help us in the days to come to just win the day. We don't have to worry about the future or worry about the past. We just focus on today, being right with you and trusting in who you say we are. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.